Welcome to episode 28 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psycharmor.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. This week, I'm having a conversation with President and CEO of Valor Club USA, Dr. Michael McDowell. Valor Club USA is an organization developing a comprehensive living and learning community built to support the unique needs of transitioning service members around the country. Dr. McDowell served as the executive director of the Soldiers Project, a national organization offering free, confidential, and unlimited mental health and behavioral health for post-9-11 veterans and their loved ones, and director of operations for the Cohen Military Family Clinic at the University of Southern California. A retired Marine Corps officer, Dr. McDowell served as a field artillery and civil affairs officer with numerous platoon, battery, and battalion-level commands before he departed from active duty service in August of 2016. You can find out more about Mike by taking a look at his bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So you've had an interesting journey from your career in the Marine Corps to supporting mental health through positions with the Cohen Veterans Network and the Soldiers Project, and now the president and CEO of Valor Club. I'm interested hearing more about your journey from the military service and then your journey in post-military life. Dwayne, first of all, thanks for having me this morning. It's exciting to be here and associated with such a great organization with Psych Armor and the whole mission and being a part of it. So again, thanks for having me. It's funny because I was a school teacher before I was a Marine officer, all the way up until I went to OCS in January of uh, 2001. So I've kind of had, I've been all over the place as far as careers in, in education up front up till I was uh, 30 years old, actually, when I went in. So I was a little bit older. And so it really created a framework for me to look at it through the lens of an educator. Even as a Marine officer, I considered myself a teacher as well. And so that was, although I was out of the classroom, I was is still in the classroom, just a little bit different, as you know. And so I was really blessed. I was an artillery officer, did the 16 years, got out with the Terra, the temporary early retirement with President Obama in August of 16, and then got involved in nonprofit, which was kind of interesting. I got involved with the Cohen Military Family Clinic over at USC for a brief moment and really cut my teeth as a civilian leader which is a challenge in and of itself. And so obviously getting to know the mental health space, I'm not, as we've talked about offline, I don't come from a mental health background. So for me, it was more administrative leadership and, and those things and really understanding the challenges and the barriers that go into mental health support from all stakeholder positions, whether that be the actual person on the front end, like myself, who's had six combat tours and you know had some issues coming out. And I don't think you ever go into those environments without being a little bit disjointed and coming back the way we are and certainly had my support group and everything that I had internally, but looked at it from that lens of of the client right on the front end. So that was the first stakeholder position. And then of course, the other ones were the, the providers, 
the resources and the other things that go into providing those things. So that's where I cut my teeth as a new civilian. So it's very interesting, this idea of, of being a teacher as a young soldier in the army. I was going to get out and that's what I thought I was going to go to school. I thought I was going to be, for my almost my entire military career, I figured I'd be that high school English teacher that the kids could derail and not get homework by asking war stories. And that's where I had my mind because you're right, as a leader in the army, it's one of the ways that one of my leaders convinced me not to get out early was that's what an NCO is. We're teachers and everything else, leaders is teaching, mentoring, and developing, and then taking that into the mental health space, not as a clinician necessarily, but as a leader, it really is facilitating individuals to learn better ways to be, right? Ways to improve if there's deficits, but ways to improve, obviously, if you want sort of life to be better. I mean, that's very well stated. And I, I think there's so much courage that it takes to go into getting services and support because you've got to readdress the issue that's causing you the problems that you try to suppress and move on with your life that either you're self-medicating or you're doing dysfunctional things to, to get through the day or you're abrasive in terms of people around you that love you, whether that's children or spouses or partners or whatever. And so again, I gave me that lens and saying, hey, listen, I got it. I got some issues. Let's get fixed. And and that, that takes a tremendous amount of courage. And that's why I think going out there and being on the front end of the mental health industry really as a leader, because my job was to create resources for the providers. So that's what I did and was really proud of that at that time. And then, of course, going to the Soldiers Project and uh, working there for a couple of years, really trying to create some innovation within the space. It's a difficult field because of all the barriers that go into it, whether that's the lack of providers that are actually trained, uh, that can do the work, the geographic uh, constraints in terms of Los Angeles County, 88 little cities within the city itself of Los Angeles. Where do the geographic locations of the veterans, where do they live? Do they live where the VA services are? The answer is no. There's a huge barrier in terms of mileage and distance. And then therefore you've got a young professional, there's a 9-11 GI person who is a, is a baby uh, civilian employee. And now they've got to take time off once a week. If you're going to go to do through short-term modalities of eight to 12 weeks. And if they do go, they got to stop work and then they got to drive for 50 miles or 10 miles in Los Angeles, which could potentially take you an hour or more at certain hours. And then, oh, by the way, you got to get time off to do that. And then you got to come back. And these things just all came to my experience and said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so that's where the innovation and the, you know, for me, social entrepreneurship, which is something I really like doing in, in, in terms of fixing problems, not just talking about them as a scholar, but actually as a practitioner, led me into the academic work that I've done, which is my doctoral work and those things before I got into the Nevada Club. And so now you're president and CEO of the Valor Club, and I'm always interested in in hearing about supportive residential communities for veterans, similar to Bastion in New Orleans or uh, the Veterans Community Project Village in Kansas City. My first position out of the military was actually in homelessness work. I was working as a, a program director for an emergency veteran housing program, and then I moved into mental health specifically. I'm interested in hearing more about Valor Club, the concept, and why it's important to provide support in this particular way. Let's just be really honest. Across the board, this is the biggest challenge our veterans have is finding safe and affordable residencies in terms of, of whether that's an apartment, multifamily, whether it's a single family home, whatever it might be. So it's really the linchpin. So if you're in your car in Los Angeles, I should say, because that's where I was at, where I moved here to Texas recently, you know, you're a single mother, single father living in a car with two kids. Getting mental health is number priority 612, mm -hmm. not 
the least of which is just surviving the night and not being assaulted or having your stuff stolen. So that really became the foundation of this problem of practice of really why some vets succeed and other ones don't. One of the things that I decided to do was in my doctoral work at USC was figure this out because as a nonprofit guy, and that's where I cut my teeth as a civilian, is to expect the nonprofits to do all this work is really, it's really unfair on so many levels because they're chasing dollars, they're trying to have established leadership. And I'm just talking about the executive level at this point. For people who are running those organizations, you got to have solid boards, you got to have fundraisers, you go through ebbs and flows in terms of social conditions and, and economic conditions, bear markets, bull markets, downturns. If you're heavy government grants, what happens when that next administration comes in and the grants go away? And now, or vice versa, you're into private donors and private donors only. And now, oh, by the way, we're going through a recession. They're going to be likely to do it. Tax laws change. So you have to look at holistically how to run an organization to expect a nonprofit to do it is very, it's just like I say, it's unfair. So the Valor Club was built on a private model in terms of a, a for-profit and almost like you would see in a development going in with Best Buy or a commercial residential type a multifamily project. So again, my background is not in that. So when Erwin Deutsch, who the founder is of the organization, he cut his teeth. He's retired and, and financially in a great spot for, for him. And what was interesting is he came up to me and asked me if I wanted to do mental health support specifically for Valor Club. And I said, let's turn this into something even bigger. Let's see if we can build these models, these houses, and then go through the entire chronological from cradle to grave, I guess we use that term. When a, when a baby uh, uh, a civilian is born, right? When we talk about this military veteran, Dwayne and Mike leave, they really enter this world, this cultural phenomenon that, that number one, they've never lived autonomously as an adult in the civilian sector, right? Before you left, left civilian sector, go in the Marine Corps or the Army or Air Force, wherever you got into this subculture, you really, most of them were 17, 18, 19 years of age. And so now to expect that you're going to be immediately put into the socialized system which everything is going to be taken care of for you with minimal amounts of, of decision-making in terms of the individual level. You're told what to do and where to go and how fast to get there, but you also have the support requirements. You've got a check coming twice a month. You've got an MOS. You have an identity, a rank you work hard for. you got a tribe. You're living safe. You know, dangerous as our job can be. It's very stable. You have a place to put your head, you know, at night, Iraq. you got a chow hall to eat out at, whatever. So now you leave after four or, four or 20 years, what depends on how long you stay. Now you're saying, hey, Dwayne, good luck. Here's all your bennies and good luck and, and do what you got to do. So for us as a departing entity with TAP and the other programs that the DOD and the Department of Labor attempt to do in terms of prepare us, it's really to say that it's really underperforming. And again, they're trying to do the right thing. I'm not saying that their intentions are wrong, but it's just not framed right. And so that's why a residential community is really the right answer. And so we came through this process where we're like, okay, how do we do this? How do we make this profitable in terms of not just putting money in our pocket, but we can expand it and scale that's where we purchased the 200 acres of a golf course of the Pecan Valley Golf Course, which is here in Southeast San Antonio. And we're redeveloping it with 1,400 units of affordable workforce housing built by our Gensler Architect, which is the largest in the country. And we're going to create a, a campus that's going to allow the transitioning veteran to leave service with their loved ones and then also be able to, there's five components, the residential piece where they live safely in a stable and a beautiful facility. Two is they have to get training. We want them surrounded by people who are like them in terms of the tribe, but also to be able to get into something that gives you meaningful employment careers. That's the whole point. 
The third one is the ability to have VSO support there on the campus and off the campus. Remember, part of this reculturalization I found in my doctoral studies was really having them learn how to navigate, not just bring everything to them, because that's really false. That's not the way the world works. You got to go to them. You go to the providers and stuff. So we want to be able to create those great relationships with people that are already there, that are already doing the great work. And then the next one is we're going to build the golf course back again. This is an old 18, it's a very established golf course, once hosted, hosted the 1968 PGA Championship, Arnold Palmer losing at the last minute there. And so it's very historical, this section of San Antonio. And uh, so we're going to rebuild it, put nine holes of golf back in there. It'll play 18, as you can imagine. And then the la- and then there'll also be some other physical fitness and other types of things we're going to build into that. And then the last one is connection with a company of their choice or series of choices where they can go and look at what they've been training on for you know six months or five years, whatever they're doing in their training. Now they have the opportunity to do uh, permanent employment, making good money in trades and or professions that they've dreamed of doing that they're now ready for. So that's the model, essentially. You know, it's, and again, this idea of everything being the package, right? These supportive veteran communities. But I've always been intrigued about this idea of really what you're talking about is Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that basic need of security, stability, and safety. I can't think about my higher order needs if those bottom needs aren't met. But in the military, all those needs were met for us. When you were deployed, I was deployed. We didn't have to worry about where our food and water came from. Somebody did that for us, right? But really what you're looking to do is take a hybrid model of Maslow tells us what needs are met, but not how to meet those needs, but a transition model from the military in which the military gives you everything to an in-between model in which it's supportive, but also there's some some engagement on the veteran side. And then finally to full self-sufficiency. No, and that, and that's Dwayne. You can't. That's contact. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's the it's a training wheel approach. I hate to use that term because it's very simplistic. But in all actuality, think about this just alone. Think about the tribal. Look at Sebastian Younger's work. You can do all these things we talk about with community. So here's what we're going to do to Dwayne. We're going to put him into this tribe, and then oh by the way, he does four years. He's living and and eating and PTing and doing all this stuff that he's doing with his tribe. And now by the way, his EAS comes and a good luck. Here's all your stuff. That divorce is absolutely dysfunctional on so many levels. And then we're going to throw into a community, which you may or may not even know about. You come to LA because you want to be an actor. We are like, dude, what are you thinking here? This is not, you have no support here. Yeah, but I got all this VA stuff and I got all this, but you don't know about cost of living index. You don't know about all those things. And what was interesting, Dwayne, was when I started doing my doctoral qualitative studies, I started interviewing these folks through the Volunteers of America, which is, again, for many who don't know, VOA, great national organization. They help not chronically homeless folks, but people who are temporarily unsheltered by definition. And I would meet them and I'd do interviews, mock interviews. And then when I started the dissertational portion of research, I started asking these guys and I had all sorts of branches. So it wasn't just Marines, it wasn't just Army. But I came to a very stark realization that I I don't know these people. I thought as a Marine field grade officer that I knew my Marines and sailors and I, I didn't know them at all in terms of their needs. And when I, because it's, it's like they put this face in this front up in front of you. And then when you see them, not as a, a commanding officer or, a, or an EXO or whatever, you're seeing them as a scholar or somebody that's doing research. And like these guys couldn't, like they had no financial acumen, right? They couldn't do, they can't even balance their financial budget. And, and a lot of them 
think about this, but they become codependent on a partner, you know, a girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever that does all the bills. Because why? Because they do it and they know how to do it. And they were dating a couple of years while they were in on the service and now they're out. They have no idea how to do that. They don't know how to do lease agreements. They don't know how to do rental agreements. They don't know how to do investing. They don't know how to do any what means in terms of what your requirements going to be financially. They don't understand how to simplistically, they don't know how to, they don't know how to cook. I mean, because they've lived in the chow hall or in the barracks. Because all of, yeah, all of that was done for them. There was no need because we don't develop mastery in those areas because we're too busy developing mastery as an artillery officer, right? Your focus is gunnery, not balancing a checkbook. And that's the challenge I think is, and the idea behind Valor Club is to help them develop mastery in these other areas that they're going to need for the rest of their lives. That's exactly it. And, And mastery learning, again, as an educational psychologist, that's something for me that's very important is mastery learning, not performance goal setting, which is again, to your point. So I think these life skills, I, I call it adulting, which is, is this, is this the DOD's responsibility to offload this, this 200,000 who leave every year, but that's not in their wheelhouse. That Let's be honest, they're a warfighting function. And so what's a one week tap course going to do? It, it's just, we can do better. And and by doing this with the Valor Club, the way we're modeling ourselves is we're not competing with anybody. We're actually embracing everything. They do. We want to help each organization that's partnering with us to make mission because we're making our money on a rent. And Again, just so everybody knows, we're offering affordable rates. So in this area of San Antonio, it's a little bit less affluent. And so we're never going to get market rates. So what we're doing is I just we just made a deal with the uh, San Antonio Housing Trust for the city where we get residential tax credits that allow the rents to be well below what their BH would be. So they essentially, $1,645 a month, I think is what their post-911 GI bill is. I think it'll be probably less than $1,000. The idea behind it was, is to make it affordable. They can learn how to build their credit. They can learn how to become culturally uh, astute in terms of being competency in that area, but then also be doing things that they want to do. The research shows us, and this was really interesting in my doctoral work, 70% of our veterans don't do what they did in their MOS. That's a big number. Including you and me. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do as an artillery guy? Maybe you could be in supply chain logistics. Maybe. But at the end of the day, if you're a corpsman and these companies are looking, you know, these, these people in healthcare, they want, Dwayne's a medic, so he's going to go in and he wants to be in healthcare. Guess what? He was told to do that. And number two, he had a little bit of trauma during this process where he was in three combat tours, lost his brothers and sisters. And, and by the way, he just doesn't want to do that for the rest of his life. He wants to start something new. So those are, again, things that I found as a simple data point. The other thing, the mismatching that we do with career, one of the other interests I have is employment. Syracuse had a study that I actually replicated and I'm getting ready to publish that 43% of our veterans don't have a one-year anniversary in their first jobs. That's a terrible number. In fact, 70% don't have a two-year anniversary. So when you look at it from the stakeholder of the veteran, they're not aligned in terms of their interests. They're, as again, we're talking about intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic, not about money, because that doesn't motivate people in the end in terms of finding peace and, and harmony and joy, but it's intrinsic value. It's things that you feel like you can have a control over in terms of your career growth and finding meaning in that employment career. So again, so that's something that's not aligned. The other one was, is what's the cost for companies that have to retrain Dwayne and Mike? It costs us 15 to 20, maybe 30,000, depending on the industry, to backfill when you give that two-week notice. And that's in terms of search costs. That's in terms of other things, specifically the onboarding, training, cultural training, all the other things that go on. 
on. And so I wanted to be able to say, listen, if we can create something where we get Dwayne and Mike into really good careers, that they really are in that field for the right reasons, that they can find joy. And what that does is bring stability. So then you have the opportunity to go out in the community you want to live in, wherever that is around the country. It doesn't necessarily have to be San Antonio, but here it's like, this place is like a, I hate to use the term boomtown. This is a boomtown, literally with Austin and San Antonio. It's the fastest growing city in the country, seventh largest. And, and that's why we wanted to plant roots here because at the end of the day, this is where all the manufacturing's going. It's leaving California. It's going Oracle, Hewlett Packard, Tesla, Toyota. They're all here now and they're looking for people that are, but you can't just come in and breathing and fogging up a mirror. You got to have skills. And that's what we want to be able to do is get them into the Valor Club, get your training. It could be as less as low as three months where the training at a company and then get into that, that culture where you have upward mobility. Stuff's not going away. You can make good money. Cost of living is low. And then again, you get your kids in your community. You're involved in the community. You're, you're voting, you're, you're paying your taxes, all the things that you do as a good citizen. That's what's going to bring stability. And that's what's going to bring purpose into our lives. And quite frankly, and this is something that is all anecdotal, but I think the suicide thing is overstated in a lot of ways because we're looking at it from a re- almost like a reactionary methodology instead of a preventative one. I'm going to show that my Valor Club, and we're going to keep data on this. This is why Psych Armor is going to be so critical to us, is I want to keep data on us doing quality of life surveys when you come in, Dwayne. And then guess what? You're going to do it midway through your program. And then you're going to do it at the end of your graduation. Then we're going to follow you over time to show that our population doesn't hurt themselves. Because they're knee deep and they're they're busy. They've got good careers. They're buying homes. They're 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 in the community again. The kids are in school. They're paying taxes. All the things we talk about. And I think that is really a preventative. It's less money, quite frankly, and it has less social costs in terms of the uh, the end state with homelessness, drug use, all the other things. So, no, you're absolutely right. Suicide very much is a lagging indicator of underlying unresolved problems. If, if we're trying to address suicide, we're on the wrong end of it. In the work that I do is really looking at the public health approach and looking at the social determinants of health, like you're talking about, good economic stability, good housing stability, good community, good relationships, all of those things that will keep people from gaining into a suicidal crisis. Absolutely think that it's a, a great program, a great model. If people wanted to find out more about Valor Club, how could they do that? You can go to our website, which is a good starter, ValorClubUSA.com. We have another one that's also ValorClubPartners.com. That's more of an for investors. Again, we're working with developers and other people to come in and, and partner with us on this. But again, we've literally hundreds of different community partners that are involved with this. So again, we want to help them make their mission. So that's the key. We're probably two years out from actually residential stuff right now, because again, we're going from strategic concept to operational concept. So we're trying to get 53 single family homes, but we've got a company that's going to be doing that for us. But we own the land. So that's what makes life a lot easier in terms of being able to put stuff together without the constraints of putting it on a government, put it on a VA campus which again is is a great idea. The problem is all the constraints legally, which you can and can't do is very, it's just, it stifles you. And for us now, we can do it. Our community has been re- zoned residential commercial. So again, it, it makes it very easy. We're also trying to create other things for lifestyle. You know, there's a hike and bike trail that goes right, by, it's being built right now, actually through our campus that goes all the way through San Antonio. So we're trying to build a very nice restaurant there. That's going to be a patio type situation where concerts, typical Texas stuff, where you can get a burger and a beer and, and sit down with your family for two, three hours and just socialize with folks. And so, So we're trying to create that and some other things to help the community 
not just the veterans inside the community, but also the community itself. We have huge amounts of elected leaders that are all about what we're doing. But again, the goal is to scale this around the country. And I think that these emerging markets are really critical. Areas like Denver, areas like Phoenix, like areas like Nashville, Tampa, these areas that all these companies, you got to follow the companies because they need this labor. Because if we don't get labor supported in terms of people in these, whether it's manufacturing, whether that's a skilled trades, we're going to have a problem as a country if we don't fill this. And veterans are perfectly positioned to do this because we have unbelievably good hard skills. We get there on time. We wear the part. We dress the part. The challenges are the soft skills, being able to come in and, and be able to culturally reassimilate with people that are not like us. That's the hiccup. And uh, we think that we can have a big effect on that. You know, I can imagine it, it definitely sounds like you can. I wish you luck. Really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks, Dwayne. I appreciate the opportunity. And again, if anybody has any questions, uh, my phone number is actually on the uh, website. So give me a call and I'll be able to help anybody in any way I can. Absolutely. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. The first thing I'd like to talk about are some of the barriers for veterans reaching out for behavioral health treatment. One of the things I've always said is that it's important to get veterans to therapy on their own. You can't force it on them. You can't force them to drink once they've been led to the water. There are certainly some internal barriers that exist, the things that are inside the veteran holding them back a lack of trust in therapy, the suck it up and drive on mindset, the internal stigma against being seen as weak or less than for talking to a therapist. But here I'm talking about some of the barriers that exist when a veteran overcomes those internal barriers. As Mike mentioned in the show, therapy is a weekly commitment. Not always. I see some clients every other week, but for some who are really struggling and especially at the beginning of therapy, it's most beneficial when it's done weekly. But it's not like a physical doctor or dentist. You don't go to these medical appointments on a weekly basis unless there's something really wrong. But needing to leave work early every Thursday or take a long lunch every Monday can be hard if you're a working age adult. Not a lot of people have that much control over their schedule. Whether it's shift work or sales or something else, there's a set period of time that you're expected to be there. So distance, travel, waiting time, all of that factors in. You need two hours minimum at some point during 9 to 5 to get to your clinician. Yes, some therapists offer early morning, night, or weekend hours just to reduce that barrier, but it's mostly a daytime gig just like everyone else. Telehealth and the ability to do remote sessions can certainly reduce some of that barrier, but it takes effort and flexibility on the part of the veteran to make that kind of thing work. Another barrier for some is simply the cost of therapy. There's no cost at the Department of Veterans Affairs, except for in rare instances, but not all veterans are eligible for the VA, have one accessible, or can be seen as frequently as they'd like. If you have insurance, then there may or may not be a copay, and if you don't have insurance, that's an entirely different challenge. Therapists are mental health professionals with advanced clinical degrees along with other medical professionals, and there's often a struggle between a desire to support people with their mental health as much as possible and the need to make a living themselves. This barrier, again, can be overcome through a number of local and national organizations providing culturally competent behavioral health at low or no cost to those who served, many of which are PsychArmor partners. So the concept of Valor Club USA, a residential complex meeting all of the needs of veterans and their families, is one that can hopefully reduce some of those barriers that exist to getting support. The other point that I'd like to make is something that I referenced in the interview about how veterans and their families need to adapt to how they meet their needs after the military. 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a well-known concept both inside and outside of psychology and basically says that there are certain needs that must be met for us to be the best us that we can possibly be. These are basic needs, such as physiological and safety needs, psychological needs, such as belongingness and esteem, and self-fulfillment needs, self-actualization and replication. This is a hierarchy in that the lower needs must be met before the higher needs are met. We can't focus on belongingness and self-actualization if we don't have our safety needs met. Like Mike said in the interview, addressing trauma is priority number 612 if you're sleeping in your car. But this is a critical part of adjustment in post-military life. As I mentioned in the interview, the military meets a lot of those basic needs for you and even provides boundless opportunities for the psychological needs, all in an effort for service members to be the most efficient and effective as they could possibly be. But again, as I mentioned before, Maslow's hierarchy identifies what needs have to be met, but not how we meet those needs. And that's something that some veterans struggle with after the military, how to meet their basic needs and even the higher needs. Self-actualization comes from having a well-rounded life and engaging in meaningful efforts that you have achieved a level of mastery in. But it's hard to achieve mastery in a task, again, if you don't know what you're eating for dinner tomorrow. That's where supportive residential communities can come in and, for a certain segment of the veteran population, help provide some support while also helping the veteran develop the skills needed in post-military life to help develop some of that mastery. So check out what Valor Club is doing, as well as other supportive residential communities, and support where you can. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to highlight the courses for transitioning service members and their families, many of which address some of the issues that we talked about in this episode. Each year, more than 200,000 service members leave the military for the civilian sector. Navigating this transition can be complex, but these short, self-paced courses will benefit service members and families alike in successfully navigating their journey. Sponsored by the Schultz Family Foundation, these courses are for any service member, veteran, or military family member making the transition from military service. Whether you're separating or retiring, this portfolio of courses will provide you the education, tools, and resources you need along the way. Beginning with the course, How to Build a Successful Transition Plan, you'll learn that there's no one right way to transition and that each journey is unique. Your transition plan may be different from others, but each course in this portfolio was designed to assist you along the way, and we hope that you find them beneficial. On behalf of the Schultz Family Foundation, PsychArmor Institute is proud to offer these courses as a guide for service members and their families during their transition into civilian life. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at psycharmor.org forward slash BTM28, as well as on the PsychArmor website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.